Well, tonight we're going to be in lesson four of our Discipleship 101 study that we've been in the, the entire time we've been a church for four whole weeks now. Uh, so welcome to Community Church. We're so glad that you're here. Over the past few weeks, we've been taking a look at some of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. We want to lay that firm foundation before we move on into the deeper things in the Word. But we've looked at things like the gospel. We've looked at things like salvation and discipleship, and we've tried to define them biblically, right? What does Scripture say about those things? And so tonight, we want to examine several passages of Scripture that are going to hopefully validate what we've been teaching here and what we've been studying and learning about those key doctrines, especially as it relates to the doctrine of salvation. We're going to take a look at some biblical accounts of salvation tonight from the Scriptures. For example, okay, if the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we've been talking about, if the gospel is to be preached, heard, and obeyed, in order for someone to be saved and then become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Romans 10, 14 proclaims, then can we see actual evidence of that from other passages of Scripture? And if so, where? Right? I mean, are there examples of this actually happening to people? And if someone must believe or if they must obey the gospel by faith, before they're regenerated and given the Holy Spirit, which does guarantee them eternal life, according to Ephesians 1.13, then do we see that happen in the lives of anyone as recorded in the pages of Scripture? In other words, what we're trying to do is see if we can actually prove our doctrine, right? Meaning what we believe about Scripture from actually looking at the practical outworking of that doctrine within its own pages. And I would certainly hope so, right? I would certainly hope that as a Bible church, we could do that. If not, we've got a real problem, don't we? This is where I think some people, though, unfortunately get off the rails a little bit when it comes to theology, okay? Because what they tend to do is bring their own presuppositions to the text of Scripture in order to sometimes systematize it or basically make it fit into their own theological persuasion rather than just letting Scripture speak for itself, we don't want to do that. We want to just let the text speak for itself. In fact, the best way to study Scripture is to always compare Scripture with Scripture, right? If you're not sure about a certain passage, then go to another passage of Scripture and compare that, okay? Don't tell the Scriptures what you want them to say. Don't manipulate them and take them out of context or so that you can make them appear in a way that you want them to to sound like. No, don't do that at all. Compare Scripture with Scripture and find out what they actually say. That's called hermeneutics, okay? And the best hermeneutic, it's a method of interpretation. That's all that word means. It's how do we interpret the Bible. And the best way to interpret the Bible when it, when it comes right down to it is to never let outside sources change the meaning of the text, never let an outside source determine that meaning, but always let Scripture define itself. So use the scriptures to interpret the scriptures. And furthermore, when it comes to interpreting the more difficult passages of scriptures, anybody ever ran across a difficult passage? <laughs> They're all over the place, aren't they? It's hard sometimes to interpret a passage of scripture, but I recommend some advice to you. I got this advice from a pastor friend one time, and I really love it because he said, always use the clear to interpret the cloudy. So when you're comparing Scripture with Scripture and you come across a passage that's sort of difficult, then use the clear passage to interpret the cloudy passage, right? Always think about what the clear 
teachings of Scripture are, look at the obvious ones, okay, because they're out there too, and then interpret that more difficult passage through that clear lens, the clear teaching of Scripture. Because here's the deal, Scripture is never, ever going to contradict itself. It won't do that. So don't try to cram Scripture into a systematic box in order to make sense of it, etc. Don't manipulate the text in order to make it fit your particular doctrinal persuasion or whatever. Just let it speak. Just let the Bible speak for itself through the clear and plain and obvious teachings that we see all throughout its pages. Okay? So, I do think that too many Christians have come to rely on some things um, maybe a little too heavily. We tend to rely on, for instance, dead theologians. Those are the smart ones, right, from the 1500s. We tend to rely on church councils. We tend to rely on church confessions and catechisms and things like that in order to establish our doctrine instead of just letting the Bible speak for itself. So we've got to be very, very careful. Okay? Use the tools available to you, right? If it's going to help you to gain a better understanding of the text, that's fine. But never allow man-made doctrine to creep in and cloud the clear teachings of Scripture. You've got to be careful. But having said that, trust me, I confess, I use commentaries. I read commentaries a lot. I read some of the old theologians. You've already heard me quote from two of my favorites already here at Community Church, which are C.S. Lewis and G. Campbell Morgan. I think I quoted from both of them last week. So, and I'm sure you're going to hear me quote from many more, so I'm not saying it's a bad thing, although we've got to be careful not to allow these teachings of men to creep in and formulate our doctrine. We've got to be careful against that, okay? Look to Scripture and Scripture alone for that. What we believe here at Community Church is called sola scriptura. Okay, and all that means is Scripture alone. So Community Church's mission statement is to obey the commandments and commission of Christ. And we take that directly from Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, and Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Community Church's vision is to be the church. It's to win souls to Christ and disciple them to maturity in Christ to worship the Lord wholeheartedly and teach His Word unapologetically, using the Bible as our only source for belief and behavior. So that's our vision. And I have a copy of that on the table back there, along with our statement of faith and our church constitution. You're welcome to take a copy home with you if you would like. But in other words, community church, we want to be a Bible church. Okay, We're not affiliated with the denomination we're not a fil- we're independent, we're autonomous. I'm not saying denominations are bad because most of them are not, but we're an independent, autonomous Bible church. And so we use the Bible as our final and our full authority on everything relating to both our beliefs and our practice, okay? And so honestly, I just think that should be the case for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Scripture should be the authority. But as it relates to our study of some of these foundational doctrines of the faith, especially in regard to salvation, which we're going to be looking further into tonight. I like what Pastor John Lawrence said. He's the pastor at Calvary Chapel in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And he said this. He said, There are many people who can talk about a salvation experience, but that doesn't mean they've been saved. All experiences must conform to Scripture for them to be valid. And to that I say, Amen. Because here's the deal. We're talking about salvation. We're going to be looking at biblical accounts of salvation. So the deal is this. If you cannot validate your experience with the Word of God, then it's likely that your experience was not valid. Okay? Because Christians are not guided by their feelings. We're not guided by our experiences. We should be guided by the Word of God. Psalm 119, 105 says, 
your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I love that scripture. Here's kind of how Adrian Rogers said it. He's one of my favorite past pastors from the past. Uh, he taught at uh, Bellevue in Memphis for many years. But he used to always say this. He would say, as believers, we don't wait for a feeling. We don't watch for a sign. But we trust in the unchanging word of God. I love that statement because he's exactly right. Okay, So with that in mind, let's take a look into the scriptures ourselves to see if we can find examples of salvation in them, salvation accounts that are going to line up with what we've already been teaching here in regard to the gospel, salvation, discipleship over the last few weeks. So here we go. What happens to a person who is truly saved? If you have your Bibles and want to follow along, then please turn to the book of Acts. We're going to look at a few passages in the book of Acts tonight, and we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, down in verse 14, and I'm going to read all the way down through verse 42. So I'm going to read a few large chunks of Scripture tonight, so hang in there with me. Okay, this first section of Scripture is going to be from Peter's sermon at Pentecost, all right? He says this, verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose. Remember, the Holy Spirit was sent, and they were speaking in other languages. And so he said, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting from the Old Testament here. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Verse 28, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you. He's saying, guys, I'm going to be honest with you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, 
And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Amazing. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but says to himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37. Now, check this out. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That word call is the Greek word proskaleo. It means to summon or to invite. Verse 40, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Okay. What a great portion of Scripture that is. But we're going to break this passage down into four different sections, okay? And then we're going to see if we can explain or if we can describe what happened in each of those four sections, okay? So first, we're going to look back at verses 14 through 36, and we're going to call this section 1. Okay, this is the very beginning of Peter's great sermon at Pentecost. It was fantastic. And so I think if we were to summarize the point of his message here in section 1, again, verses 14 through 36, we could say that Peter is proclaiming to the crowd that Jesus is the risen and prophesied Messiah. That's him. He is both Lord and Christ, okay? And he uses several Old Testament passages here to prove that point, doesn't he? In other words, he's using the Scriptures, to prove both his experience with Christ and the truth about Christ. He quotes from Joel chapter 2. He quotes from Psalm 16, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, and Psalm 110, all right here in that passage we just read. So now let's look at section 2. That's going to be just one verse, Acts 2.37. Okay, we're going to call this section 2 of this passage. So what was the result of the first part of Peter's message about Christ. Again, he's proclaiming that Jesus is risen. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. What's the result? When the people heard it, they were what? Cut to the heart. That's amazing. In other words, they were convicted. These folks were convicted when they heard the truth about Jesus and they wondered, what do we do? The word says, what shall we do? So after hearing the truth, these people were convicted of their sin and then they wondered, how in the world are we supposed to respond to what we just heard? And then Peter tells them in section 3 of this passage, which is verses 38 through 40. Peter says, here's what you do. You repent, which means to turn away, and then you be baptized. In other words, be saved, right? Be saved. And then in the last section of this passage... Section 4, which is verses 41 and 42, we see that some of them gladly did receive this word. They, were they heard it. They were convicted. They wondered what to do. Peter said what to do, and they gladly received that. And then they were baptized, about 3,000 souls. Wow. I want you to notice something. 
This is interesting in this last section of Scripture here in this, in this particular passage. Because these people who were saved, who did gladly receive this word, they didn't consider it to be just fire insurance, right? It wasn't their get-out-of-hell-free card at all. They didn't just go back to their old way of living, did they? No, what does the word say? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. So they didn't just say a prayer, thinking they're good with God, and then go back to living the way they've always lived. No. To repent means to turn away, to change directions. These people actually did that because they were going in a new direction, and they continued in that direction steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They ate together, the Word says. They prayed together. Man, I love that. That sounds like community church, doesn't it? Guys, what they were doing is they were growing up in the faith together. Okay, they actually lived in a way that represented how they believed. It was real Christianity. Let's take a look at another passage of Scripture. Flip over to Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read from there down to chapter 4, verse 4. Now, this is where Peter is preaching at the porch or on the porch at the temple. It's called Solomon's porch. But I want you to see if you can find a pattern here in these Scriptures as I read through them, okay? Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? As though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk. So they had just healed the lame man at the beautiful gate. Okay, that's what happened. That's what he's referring to here. Then in verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go, verse 14, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, verse 15, check this out, and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are all, or we are witnesses. Verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him, meaning Christ, has given him, the lame man, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Verse 22, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Verse 24. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 26. Check this out. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. 
chapter 4. Now as he spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. In verse 4, however, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Wow. So let's take a look at what happened here, okay? We're going to break this down into sections, just like we did the last passage. Section 1 is going to be verses 12 through 18 from chapter 3. And in this section, Peter informs these folks that all of the prophecies concerning the Messiah have been filled in Jesus Christ. All of those prophecies have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus, and that it was faith in Jesus that actually healed the lame man at that beautiful gate, right? He said that Jesus was the Holy One that was killed and then raised to life again. What does that sound like? It sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Then in section 2 of this passage, which is verses 19 through 26, Peter tells them something very interesting. He says to repent and be converted. Why? That their sins may be blotted out. But the very Christ Jesus who was preached to them before, by the very Christ Jesus, rather, who was preached to them before, and again, he uses Scripture to establish the truth about Christ. He uses Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, 18, and 19. He uses Scripture to establish the truth about Christ. And then in section 3 of this passage, which is chapter 4, the first four verses, we actually see the result of Peter's charge to repent. Okay, He says, many of those who heard the word believed. Okay, Now, of course, this implies rather that there were those who did not believe. Okay, There were some who heard and didn't believe. In other words, they did not obey the gospel. But the word of God says that about 5,000 men believed. Think about that for just a second. We just read a couple of passages of scripture here within two or three verses or, or chapters of the Bible that total about 8,000 conversions. And that short amount of text. And Luke's only counting the men in this passage here, so it's likely that there were many, many more than that. But I hope you can begin to notice a pattern that's developing here in these scriptures as we read through them. Let's look at another one. Turn to Acts chapter 8. I'm only going to read verses 26 through 35 in this one. But it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. And she was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him. I love that. Man, Philip didn't waste any time, right? When the Spirit spoke to him, he ran. And he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the Scriptures which he was, where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? 
of himself or of some other man. And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Guys, that's why it's so important to know the word of God, huh? Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he was baptized. Now, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. So again, breaking this passage down into sections. Section one is verse 26 through 35. Look at that passage. God used Philip to preach Jesus to this Ethiopian from the scriptures, right? Specifically, Isaiah 53, verse 7. Remember what Romans 10, verses 14 and 15 said? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Paul writes, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it's written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Amen. Philip was sent. He was obedient. And he followed through. So he went and he was faithful to preach the gospel when he got there. Section 2 of the passage is verse 36. And here we see that Philip must have preached the gospel, very similar to how Peter did it, Back in Acts chapter 238, because the response of the Ethiopian to the gospel message is very similar. Okay? He says, what hinders me from being baptized? I love that. Section 3, verses 37 and 39. This is where we see a brief recap of everything that sort of took place on the chariot that day. Philip preached the gospel. The Ethiopian believed the gospel. And then Philip baptized the Ethiopian. Why? Because of his belief. Right? Preach. Believe and baptize in that order. This is why we call it believer's baptism. Um, maybe you've heard it referred to as believer's baptism because biblical baptism always follows belief in Christ. Okay? All right, one more section of Scripture and then we'll wrap it up. Hang in there with me. Turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to read verses 25 through 34. And now this is the account of the Philippian jailer who was saved, okay? It says this, Acts, Acts, excuse me, Acts 16, starting in verse 25, it says, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposed the prisoners had fled. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Verse 28. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Verse 30. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his household. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. 
Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Man, I love that passage of Scripture. Section 1 here in this passage is verses 25 through 30. And to sum it up quickly, after a miraculous earthquake happened, right? That could have released all the prisoners. I mean, they could have just ran out the door, but they didn't. They stayed. After that, the Philippian jailer fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he asked a very important question. The most important question that he has ever asked in his entire life. What must I do to be saved? Wow. Why do you think he would ask that? Have you ever wondered that? Why would he ask that question? Well, I've thought about that. What would prompt this jailer to just come right out and ask that question so bluntly? But if you look back in verse 25, remember Paul and Silas, they were praying and they were singing hymns to God, obviously out loud because some of these other prisoners, they were listening to them, weren't they? Now the jailer, it says in verse 27, was asleep at the time of the earthquake, but could it be that he heard some of what they were praying and singing about before he fell asleep? I think it's possible. Looking at section 2 of this passage, which is verses 31 and 32, they make it very clear that Paul and Silas did speak the truth of Christ to him. Why? Because they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then, of course, in section 3 of the passage, verses 33 and 34, here we see that after the Philippian jailer and his entire household had heard the word of God, the word of the Lord, Scripture says, they did believe and then they were baptized. And so here's the point, guys. Here's the point that I'm trying to bring out tonight in all of these passages of Scripture by sharing all of this with you. It's this. Do we see a common thread running through these Scriptures? And do they support what, we, what we've been teaching here the last few weeks about the gospel, about salvation, and about discipleship? So to say it another way, are we getting our doctrine from the pages of Scripture? We need to know that. And I would say absolutely we are. 100% yes, because here's what we see in every one of the passages of Scripture that we looked at tonight. We see four things. If you're a note taker, you might write this down. The first thing we see evident in all of these passages is the gospel is proclaimed. That's the first thing that happens. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 28. We read that. Acts 3, 12 through 18. Acts chapter 8, 35 and 16, 32. The second thing that happens in every one of these passages is that there is a conviction of sin or a realization of their need. Sort of a now what? moment that all of these people have okay we've seen it in acts 237 acts 3 10 through 12 8 31 and 34 and again in acts 16 30 the third the third thing that we see in all of these scriptures is that there's a call to repent so there's a call to repentance or a call to respond in other words to obey the gospel and be saved we read it in acts 238 and 40 again in acts 319 837 and 1631. The last thing that we see that's common in all of these passages here tonight is the fruit of repentance. We see fruit. Okay, we see actions of obedience after having followed Jesus by faith. So it doesn't stop there, right? Our walk with Christ is only beginning. 
So we see fruit of repentance. We've seen it in Acts 2.41, Acts 4.4, 8.38, and 16.34. So hopefully our study tonight is going to give you some biblical examples that you need to begin building that scriptural foundation for your life. We want to build the foundation of all that we believe on the text of scripture because that's going to give you the confidence to go out and share the gospel with people. That's going to give you all that you need, all of the ammo, so to speak, right? But mainly all of the confidence and knowledge that you need to go out and make disciples as we were commanded to do by Christ. We studied that. This is going to help you and encourage you to get out there and become a disciple maker. Encourage people to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and then follow him in baptism. And then we're going to disciple these believers to maturity in Christ. And so our job as the church, as believers in Christ, doesn't stop when someone comes to faith in Christ either, does it? It actually is just beginning there as well because we need to be disciple makers. The last part of what we read in in Matthew 28 was Jesus said, look, you go, you make disciples, okay, you baptize them, but then you teach them all the things that I've commanded you, right? And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And so we have a job to do as the church and raising up these disciples to maturity in Christ. That's the goal here at Community Church, okay? And more importantly, honestly, if we're looking at Scripture, that's our calling and that's our commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the truth that we see in it and for the pattern that became very evident tonight as we looked through several passages in the book of Acts, just how important it is to preach the gospel, that people hear it, that they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus by faith, that he died for their sins and rose from the grave. Lord, help us to take this message, not just to the folks in union, but to the surrounding areas and uh, wherever you have us in our workplace, at home, Help us to bring the gospel there into those places as well. Please give us the strength and the confidence that we need to be disciple makers. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to have real conversations about the gospel with people and to invite them to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus and be baptized. And then help us as a community of believers to grab a hold of these folks and help them to get to know you more. Teach them your word. Teach them all the things that you've commanded us to help them to mature in their faith and walk with them through this life. Lord, I'm so thankful that you have not left us alone in this world. You have given us your spirit. You have given us your word. And you have given us each other to walk through this life together, to encourage one another. So help us to do that. Lord, help us to love each other well, to love our community well, And we pray that many people would come to faith in Christ because of that. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.